I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. How would Nick Cage say that? I got my mind set on you. This is Nick Cage. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. This is Nick Cage. This is my Nicolas Cage impression. It's not bad. It needs some work. I know. But I got my mind set on you. What is the proper etiquette on a spoiler alert? Can you answer that? Do you even know the proper amount of time we should give somebody to see a movie before we spoil it for them? I don't know. How about this? Saturday Night Fever comes out in 1977. Do I have to give you an official spoiler alert right now? Spoiler alert! I'm going to talk about Saturday Night Fever. Why would I have to talk about Saturday Night Fever? Well, there's a big reason. Because it is the shittiest movie that's ever been made. You heard me, okay? I don't lie to you on this podcast. Saturday Night Fever is the worst fucking movie of all time. Hey, Josh, why'd you say that? Why, why would you say that about Travolta? Josh, I give you my time, I give you my ears, and you shit all over Saturday Night Fever? Come on, Josh. That's you right now. And here's me on the other side of the podcast. Shut the fuck up. Just kidding. That was a little aggressive. A little aggressive, but I'll explain. There's only four types of people in the world. Number one, people that have never seen Saturday Night Fever. Okay? And they're never going to see Saturday Night Fever. Then there's people that have seen Saturday Night Fever so many years ago that they really forget most of the movie, except they're like, yeah, that was a fine disco movie, I guess. Travolta, a lot of dancing. Those are the people that have seen it, but they don't remember much. And then there's people that have seen it recently, like me, and loved it. They thought it held up. They think it's a timeless classic. Oh, Saturday Night Fever. Terrific. And then there's people, like yours truly, who got so inspired to watch this movie after seeing the Bee Gees documentary that I already talked about, thought to myself, gotta see it. My wife said, yeah, let's finally see Saturday Night Fever. It's just one of those movies where you know you have to see one day. You got to see it because we all know the songs. We all know the soundtrack. We all know the lore. We all know the impact of that movie. So get the popcorn. It was time. Now, I didn't write down any notes. And I probably should have. Because there are some things I'm going to leave out. Just by accident. But here's the movie. Here's basically the movie. John Travolta is about 20 years old in this movie. Young Italian guy lives with his family. Works at a local paint store. Loves to dance. First of all, loves the fashion. You could tell he loves dressing up at night. He has a blow dryer for his hair. He spends a lot of time in the mirror. There are some Jersey Shore elements to this movie. Gym, tan, laundry. Hell yes. By the way, I did like that part about how the Jersey Shore castmates loved laundry. Like, Jim, I get it. You get ripped. You get in shape. Tan, I get it. You want to look good. On the beach, but laundry? How's that a part of your leisure and recreation schedule? Yo, Jim Tan and laundry. <laughs> Separate your whites and darks. Well, forget about it. Travolta is an older version of this. 
where just true vanity, Jim Tan laundry, but his passion is dancing, disco dancing at the same exact club with his boys, his boys. This crew of rapscallions, up to no good. But how rebellious are they? Eh, they like to drink a lot and smoke a lot at a disco club in Brooklyn. Okay. So let me fast forward this recap so I can get into the evaluation. The dance scenes are pretty good. You know that. The music, it's great. It's the Bee Gees. Okay. John Travolta has a dance partner he's getting ready for a dance competition with. The culmination of the whole movie is going to be a dance competition at the end of the movie. And he's training with his partner. And it turns out he doesn't really like his partner that much. He doesn't want to have sex with her. She wants to have sex with him. She wants to have a whole relationship with him. He doesn't really like her. So one day he goes to the dance studio and he sees this new lady. And that's the star of the movie. This lady is the worst actress of all time. She's always whining about something or too shy. She's either reticent. I mustn't speak or too aggressive with everything she says. And she's whining or she's just deer in headlights. And her character is never developed or even explained. Everything she says is out of context. Travolta falls in love with her. He respects her dancing skills and he wants her to be his partner for the big competition. There's your plot. Are there unnecessary gang fight scenes against a Hispanic gang? Yes. Totally unneeded? Of course. Travolta and his boys... When they drive across the Brooklyn Bridge, they like to play too many games. They actually get out of the car and they jump around on the side of the bridge. And you just know, oh, something bad's going to happen. And eventually, something bad happens. One of their friends, he's dancing too much. He's depressed because he got a girl pregnant and he falls to his death. And that scene is totally out of the blue. You don't even know how you should feel. The cops investigation doesn't even exist. All the boys get to go away. No one explains anything. We move on with the movie. And now here's the dance competition. The night of the dance competition the previous dance partner for Travolta, she shows up, she drinks too much, she takes some drugs, and there is a brutal gang rape scene in the backseat of a car. Even saying that out loud is difficult, right? The word rape, it's so gross. Try watching this scene. This scene is so ugly, it's so horrific, it overshadows all the dancing. Saturday night, brutal gang rape in the backseat. This poor woman, this poor girl. And then the movie just moves on. And then Travolta finally dances in this competition with his newly found partner who he loves so much, but she's not into him because she thinks he's lowbrow and she's high-end Manhattan, at least she pretends to be. And they dance and it's fine. It's almost boring, actually. Their dance scene is fine. It's like a B minus. It's fine. And then there's a Hispanic duo dancing to a different kind of music. And guess what? They're much better. And Travolta knows that. And Travolta says, guys, you've been lying to me all this time. They're better than us. And his friends are like, no, come on, Tony, you're the best. And he's like, no, fuck you. He gets so mad at all. Fuck you. Uh, get out of my face. And he gives them the trophy. He goes to the Hispanic couple who has been victimized with so many racial slurs throughout this movie. You almost cringe every time they're in the scene or any minority is in the scene. And I realize it's from 1977. I realize that. But it didn't age well for other reasons as well. So Travolta gives them the trophy. He gives them the victory check. He says, you are better than us. And then he goes to the car, drags the new dance partner, the leading lady of this movie, to a car, and then proceeds to aggressively rape her. It's a rape attempt. And she's like, get off me, get off me. And he doesn't get off. And he's trying so hard to force his way into her. This is Saturday Night Fever. Did I watch the wrong movie? 
And this is towards the end of the movie. And then she finally wrestles him off of her. What are you doing? She's not in the mood for him. She doesn't like him. So he forcefully takes it into his own hands. This is the protagonist? Tony? This is the guy we cheer for? Why would I cheer for him? Do I want him to get a better job? Do I want him to win dance competitions? Do I want him to have any level of success? Fuck no. He chooses cheeseburger with the mouth open the whole movie. He yells at his parents at the dinner table. Conversations that make no sense. I don't know who wrote this script, but oh my God, it's such dog shit. And then how does the movie end? He's just walking up and down the subway platform. He stays up all night and then he knocks on a door. It's the woman. She lets him in. And then the movie ends with them deciding to be friends. Roll the credits. Oh no, Tony. What the fuck did I witness? Saturday Night Fever should be buried in a cemetery. That movie should be dead, locked up, me tooed, whatever it is. Now, I don't like the word cancel. I don't even love the whole idea of cancel culture. It's too extreme. But what I'm saying about Saturday Night Fever is the truth. Okay, you get over all the racism and all the sexism. There are unexplained rape scenes that seem to be very commonplace. Does the filmmaker want us to feel sympathy for anybody? Pity? Or are we still cheering for Tony and his friends? As the credits are rolling, and Travolta and the lady, they hug, the credits start rolling, you're like, oh, they're going to be friends. His rape attempt from last evening did not impact her. To the point where she wouldn't want to see him again. He was apologetic. And she said, are you even capable of being friends? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. You're like, geez, he's not. I don't think he's a man of integrity. I don't think he'll keep his word. I do think it's time for Saturday Night Fever 2 to come out. The sequel. Where it's just one big apology. Maybe I'm being sensitive, right? Maybe I have thin skin. And maybe I should say it's from 1977. It's not from 1877. It's from 1977. What other medium of entertainment has not aged well? You watch most movies from 1977. You're like, oh, you can't say that word. Oh, you shouldn't say that word. Oh, no, you can't do that to a woman. Oh, you shouldn't say that. Oh, women aren't supposed to be treated like that. 1977. This is a time that shouldn't be so prehistoric. Just Neanderthals. It's four years before I was born. Movies like that existed? Oh, actually, I even understand there's movies 10 years ago that wouldn't be made today. Because some of the verbiage, some of the motifs, plot developments would be viewed as very racist and sexist and unacceptable today. I get that. I think it's good that society progresses in that way. If our mainstream arts could be more inclusive and alienate less people, that's a positive. Yeah, that's a positive. I'm not saying you can't push the envelope anymore. You can still push the envelope a little bit. Do you go envelope or envelope? What do you say? Say it to yourself right now. What do you say? Envelope? Does anybody have an envelope? Or do you have an envelope? An envelope? And if you say envelope, why? It's an E. E E-N-V-E. You don't know how to spell it. But shouldn't we all just say envelope? And if we're going to commit to saying envelope, then we need to commit to the E-N prefix of all the words to be on. It's like, are you an entrepreneur? No, you're an entrepreneur. Okay, that worked. Are you an entertainer or an entertainer? That would never work. Do you say aunt or aunt to your uncle's wife? Or to your dad's sister or mom's sister? What do you say? 
Uh, let's get back to Tony. Tony, roll the credits, play the Bee Gees music, make people feel confused and dirty. Yeah, that's not a good one. That's not a good one. And it probably got great reviews, and it's viewed as a legendary movie by many. However, there's a movie that just came out, went under the radar, and it didn't get great reviews. It was produced by Jon Stewart from The Daily Show, starring Steve Carell. It's called Irresistible, and it was really good. I felt like it was as good as any high school government class in terms of teaching the power of super PACs and the DC influence on little races. I'm not talking about governor races or senate races, house races. I'm talking about mayoral races. A little mayor race in a little town in Wisconsin seemed to feature a Republican and a Democrat with two different visions. And then Steve Carell, a campaign advisor out of D.C. on the left side, and Rose Byrne, who's hilarious, by the way, Rose Byrne from Bridesmaids, who you know, just Google her face and you go, oh yeah, her, the best part of Bridesmaids. Okay, maybe Melissa McCarthy. But Rose Byrne and Steve Carell are both playing the D.C. heavy hitters angle in a small town in Wisconsin. And the movie has a great aha moment at the end. I won't spoil that. I won't spoil that. I won't spoil most of it. But it just goes to show the power of super PACs. How big money could be so closely related to these small little races. These little political races throughout small towns in America. Those aren't pure anymore. I mean, maybe they never were. But it was just further proof that a lot of these little towns that people learn about during the presidential election, because some guy's standing in front of a map pointing to so many little towns and saying, if there's a big blue spread here, and if there's a big red flood here, then you're going to see the tables turn on this swing area. And we go, what? what's going on in that little town? How they fluctuate? Red, blue, blue, red, red, blue, blue, red. Well, it might be the power of DC money. It might be the power of super PACs, not exactly the vision or the voices of the townspeople. The charm of small town politics, right? Probably doesn't even exist. And then my other takeaway is because this movie is historical fiction, it's actually based on true stories, even though it's stemmed in fiction, just made me say, this is going to end one day. The USA, if we consider ourselves a dominant empire, the USA, it's becoming so backwards and corrupt in so many ways. And I don't need to go down that path. I think it'll last for a while. Don't get me wrong. I think it'll last through my lifetime, my daughter's lifetime, her kid's lifetime. I think we got about four or five more generations till it really implodes. And how do I know that? Because historically, all empires implode. All dominant countries ebb and flow. They rise and then they plummet. It's going to happen. But the seeds are so evidently planted already to see how fragile this idea is. This idea of democracy, the way we do it. It's so fragile. It's so fake in many ways that the movie Irresistible pretty much explains it. It's so fraudulent. These agendas being pushed through Congress, being funded by these groups. It's nothing new. I mean, that's why the movie didn't get great reviews. Because a lot of people said, didn't learn much. It's nothing new. Okay, so we're all aware of it. And we all just continue to play the game and say, ah, that's, <laughs> that's politics. That's America. Okay. We'll keep doing this. I mean, I'll keep doing this. Some people are suffering. This model, this model that's in place right now doesn't work for a lot of people. We know that. But if you have a lot of money or you want a lot of money, and that's the American dream, you can keep playing this game for a while. It's a game. I recommend it. It's called Irresistible. There's some parts of the movie that don't work, but the end, the last 10 minutes, makes you smile. You go, ah, okay, I get it. There it is. There's a message. And I won't even tell you the message right now because that would be a spoiler. But I felt like it was educational 
in many ways for young people who might fall asleep in a government class to obtain some knowledge through a film like this? That's my takeaway. You know what I wonder? Here's what I wonder on the topic of the USA. We just had this really smooth transition of leadership for this country, right? It was just such a wonderfully smooth transition of one president to another, really acting like adults, just dignity on display. It was wonderful to watch. It was really sweet. Or not. Or maybe the ugliest shit you could ever witness was from number 45 to number 46. However, there's one tiny little story that got swept under the rug. There's one tiny little story. And that is, Joe Biden came out. After his inauguration, he gets into the Oval Office, his chair, his desk, and he tells the country, he tells the world, Donald Trump, left me a very generous letter. That's all he said. Generous. That's the only adjective Joe Biden said. Donald Trump left me a very generous letter. And then he said, and I'll just keep it at that. He said, I don't want to reveal anything until I talk to him as if they're ever going to talk. But Biden revealed that there was a letter written from Trump to Biden. I need that. We all just moved on, right? Went, oh, okay. No, 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 no. I need that letter, Joe. I need to know what Donald wrote and what your vision of generosity even is. Did Trump really write a generous letter to Joe Biden? Did he? That's kind of amazing. Didn't shake his hand, didn't attend the inauguration, didn't even admit that Biden won the election. Just kind of faded into Florida where he's still angry. Okay. And the volume on our national politics, at least for a little while, has been turned down. I'm not saying it's quiet. I'm just saying the volume's been turned down a little bit. February's been a little nicer, whereas January was one big panic attack. Just one big volcano eruption throughout January. And now we're picking up the pieces, dusting ourselves off. And there's that one mystery. What the fuck did that letter say? And what if it really was generous? Like, what if it was, dear Joe, it's been a rocky time for me and my family, and I want to apologize. Of course it's not, right? Of course it's not. But let's fantasize for a moment. Dear Joe, I'm so sorry that I made this transition for you. So difficult. I know deep down you won the election, Joe. But I had to play this game for my followers. It got so out of hand that I didn't want to let them down. And sure, I became the face of the Proud Boys and QAnon. And sure, I might have said there's good people on both sides and one of the sides was a bunch of neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. I might have said that. And have I been unapologetic with some of my derogatory comments about certain races and women throughout the years? You know, Joe, I might have. I might have. But really, this is a generous letter welcoming you to the White House. Good luck. Godspeed. Best wishes, Donald J. Trump. That letter has never been written, of course, but there is a mysterious letter that Joe Biden may never reveal. And I hope one day in my lifetime, we at least get to know what made it feel generous to Joe. Was it generous? There's your what if. Here's a wild what if. What if one day, it could be five years from now, 10 years from now, Trump writes a tell-all book and says, you know what? That was a performance. It won't happen. I'm just saying what if. Go with me on this fantasy. What if Trump just reveals, you know what, that's all a performance. I was doing this reality TV show. It got out of hand. I became the president and I became the face for many hate groups and a lot of 
angry white supremacists who want this country to just work for them and reflect them. A lot of these white supremacists, when they rallied around me, it got out of hand, yet I didn't retract anything because the absurdity of it all consumed me. Like, let's just say that happened. If he sounded remorseful, if he apologized one day for some of his mishaps. Do all of these people, here's my question, do all of these people, all of these people feel empty? Feel like they lost their leader? Feel like they lost their identity? Did they lose their way? Or do they just denounce him and now want to look at him as the enemy? Like, well, yeah, you're our enemy now. You were one of us. You were the face of us, like Robespierre in the French Revolution. Then they sent Robespierre to the guillotine. There's your history lesson. Would that be the case? Or does Trump really have the power to silence some of these bigots? I wonder. Like, has it got so out of hand? They've always existed, but they didn't used to be so loud and have so many avenues and platforms to be heard. I guess I'm wondering, how powerful was he? One way or the other. Are these just a bunch of sheep? Who don't think for themselves? Am I sheep? Am I a sheep for the other side? Do I even think for myself? When I say the other side, by the way, I hope you're not insinuating that I just mean the democratic side. I just mean the side that doesn't relate to white supremacy or bigotry. The side that understands the value of socialism. And if you don't, it's because you really don't understand how education works, how parks and recreation works, how firefighters function, how our police departments function how transportation works in this country, how we all pay into public services, which are many forms of socialism that have been in place for many years. And it's actually the backbone, the lifeline of this whole country. But if you demonize socialism, it's not because you're just such a dumb shit. It's because you're not informed. It's because you just got to do a little bit of reading on how valuable socialism is in many ways. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't, don't you worry. We'll still be a capitalist country, but We can be both. Yeah, yeah, we're proving that. The Generous Letter could be its own documentary. The Generous Letter on Netflix. What was in there? All right, let me get away from that. Although everything's related today, but let me get away from that for a moment. Nextdoor is an app. I think most neighborhoods have Nextdoor. I don't have that app on my phone, but my wife does. And occasionally, I look at it. Occasionally, I'd say once every two months, maybe once every three months, I ask my wife, can I see your phone so I can look at Nextdoor? And it's always a scary experience for me because I go, oh, no, 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 no. Who do I live amongst? Like, what is going to be revealed in these posts? And some of them are so simple, like selling a desk chair, anybody interested? Or what's the best recipe for oatmeal raisin cookies? Or here's a photo of a swan. Isn't it beautiful? 600 comments. Beautiful swan. Great picture. Man, I love swans. And then one comment is like, fuck swans. And someone's like, hey, watch your language. He's like, I don't have to watch my language. It's a free country. I hate swans. And then everybody gangs up on that swan-hating individual. That's next door. Any innocent, mild, normal post will be shredded, ripped apart, pureed, minced, chopped and thrown into the air for a violent eruption. But there's been something on my mind about the neighborhood I'm in. I'm now obsessed with coyotes. I'll just say that coyotes. They look like dogs. They're not dogs. They look like dogs, probably the same species, pretty sure, but they're wild animals and they're scary. And there's more and more stories about coyotes getting close. 
And two weeks ago, I saw one on our street, not on a hike in the hills, but on our street. And I was driving with my daughter and I said, there's a coyote, look. And we got up next to the coyote and then the coyote ran down an alley. All of our streets are connected with these alleys. And as the coyote ran down the alley, I was just thinking, oh shit, what if someone's walking their dog and makes that turn through the other side of the alley? I was just like, yikes, they get close. They get on our lawns now. They come to our garbage cans. Coyotes are scary, right? You don't hear about a lot of coyote attacks, but there was a post on Nextdoor. And this lady said, this is all true, by the way. This lady said, my husband and our toddler were on a walk and she gave the path this outdoor hiking path. My husband and our toddler were on a path and two coyotes appeared behind them. And my husband tried to look big, you know, scare them off and they weren't going anywhere. They're like, no thanks, motherfucker. We're going to stay here for a while. And then she wrote in this post on next door, my husband then started to pick up the pace a little bit and run and the coyotes picked up their pace a little bit. Husband gets away safely with the kid, but the coyotes started to jog with them a little bit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit, right? That's scary. It's scary. I'd probably need a day to recover. If I was with my daughter in the hills, and we do hike sometimes, and some coyotes just walked briskly with us, and all the comments are helpful until one guy writes, and by the way, next door, it's not anonymous, I don't think. You have to use your real name. One guy writes, can we stop with all the coyote shaming? Oh, buddy, why do you have this app? Oh, buddy, why do you want such attention on you? He wants people to now say, hey, you asshole, show some respect to this woman. She's just putting out a public service announcement, basically. And this guy is like, can we stop with all the coyote shaming? Like, can we show them some respect? <laughs> He wants to fight, right? And people want to fight with him. And then I read all the replies. I start reading this. I don't know why. I just start reading this. Is it entertainment? No, maybe. But I say no. And I realize two things. Number one is I am a coyote shamer, according to this guy, because I don't want them anywhere near me. Get away, coyotes. I'm coyote shaming. Everything you stand for, coyotes. I'm a coyotist. I believe you should stay in the hills and away from us. Oh, Man, are you oppressive with your derogatory slander about coyotes? I'm not sure I could listen to this podcast. Actually, I think they're kind of cute too. They're just mysterious because they look so much like dogs. I don't want to go down that path. Number two, next door is like Saturday night fever. Terrible in every way. It shouldn't exist. Do you really want to know the views of all your neighbors, everybody in your community? Doesn't it make your neighborhood feel much less desirable? All these mindsets, all these perspectives. A lot of people just spewing hate. I mean, the lady that brings you baked goods during the holidays, do you need to know how she feels about Trump? Do you? The nice people who you just see, like before Nextdoor, before the app, neighbors were people you saw, you waved to when you go on walks, maybe you see them at the park, or maybe you bring each other baked goods from time to time. Like on our street, it's wonderful. Our next door neighbor just brought over peach cobbler the other day. I don't know how our next door neighbor feels about Trump and Biden. About coyotes? I mean, I suppose I could if we had a word-of-mouth, face-to-face conversation, but this whole toxicity on a message board amongst neighbors where their names and faces are all revealed, did we need to know all of this about all the people around us? The answer is absolutely not. You know that. 
If this app didn't exist, I believe most neighborhoods would go back to Pleasantville. But now there's like a heightened feeling of who do we live amongst? Where every post, every thread just goes down a negative path. Everything. It could be something so simple. Like, hey, my daughter has a lemonade stand on the corner of Las Ovejas. Come on by. 25 cents a cup. First five comments. Oh, so cute. Oh, can't wait. Oh, I'm in the mood for lemonade. Hey, wish you the best. And then the next post is like, do you have a permit? I'm not sure there could be private businesses on streets. The next post is just, we don't need the traffic. We don't need the traffic from a lemonade stand. Could you relocate that? And the next post will say something like 25 cents back in my day. It was a nickel. And this lady's like, fuck all of you. I'm just telling you about my daughter's lemonade stand. That's next door. That is next door. Turning lemonade stands into something that looks so ugly. And it's not. And we all know it's not. It's just a vocal minority who make you feel like more people think this way. Okay. You know what? I'm done. I'm done. We're done here. I think we all had a fine time. I think Nick Cage. Nope. I don't have it in me anymore. I tried to go into the Nick Cage. I'm, I'm Nick Cage. No, I'll get it. Hold on. <clears throat> this is Nick Cage. I'm Nick Cage. This is Nick Cage. You just experienced episode 128 of the Here We Go. No, I'm... Oh, God. How about a little practice, right? There's so many micro impressions I want to try. If you just could get a few, just a few words of how some of these people sound, like John Malkovich. John Malkovich. That's episode 128. It is in the books. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>